even if something is not trendable, we only see it one time, it can be incredibly insightful. And I like to also flip that on its head is the kind of doing a negative analysis. So what are you not seeing? So it's not easy, but you can always look to see what's trending and what's popping up. But you should also be putting on the hat of, I expected to hear something, but now I'm not seeing any questions about it and ask why. Hello, and welcome to Pharma Sessions, the podcast where medical affairs professionals come to learn from each other. The topic today is medical information. My guest is Tim Fish. We dive into Tim's 4Rs framework, which is just a fantastic way to think about MedInfo. We also talk about how to become a strategic asset rather than a cost center. This is so relevant to much of medical affairs. There's a lot more in this episode, so let's jump right in. Good morning. So your role, Senior Director of Medical Information, Scientific Training and Development, and Knowledge Management Services at Alchemies. Before we even get into all of that, can you describe the role of medical information and its strategic importance to a pharmaceutical company? Sure. Yeah. And this is what I really like about medical information. I've been in a medical information role for about 15 years in one way or another. And I quickly derive medical information. I, I like to call it the four R's to simplify it. Medical information receives questions, researches the answers, responds with an answer, and then performs a review of the content that they receive over time trend analysis, and that will lend itself to the strategic importance. It's really doing a uh, in-depth review of what the customers are seeing. It's a, it is a customer listening activity that can actually influence directions that the company needs to go in. It can reveal challenges in patient care delivery systems. So it, it's a very valuable way to look at it. But yeah, foundationally, I look at medical information as these four R's, the receive, research, respond, and review. In a bit of an oversimplification, but each one of those R's has an entire universe that goes with it. And so when you talk about trend analysis or understanding where the challenges may be, how does medic, how are you pulling those insights from what I'm assuming are just a ton of inbound inquiries about how you use particular drugs or drug to drug interactions or things about specific patients. How do you actually turn that into insights and actionable things? Yeah, there's each medical information department will use a database to track the life cycle of an inquiry and the complexities of a question are usually received and documented there. A good medical information trained clinician, a scientist who's working with the customer, another clinician or whomever it might be will help refine that question to really understand what is being asked to get to a narrow concept of what the answer should be. Because so much thought goes into understanding the clinician and the customer is asking, over a period of time, you can trend to see, are these customers asking the same question? Are they experiencing issues that their patients are bringing up? And even a couple of other things that I look at, I always say to my team, an in of one is not necessarily should be ignored. We as the critical thinkers apply what we're seeing in medical information. Mm -hmm. And even if something is not trendable, we only see it one time, 
it can be incredibly insightful. And you may want to bring that to your medical affairs leadership or additional within the company. And I like to also flip that on its head is the kind of doing a negative analysis. So what are you not seeing? So it's not easy, but you can always look to see what's trending and what's popping up. But you should also be putting on the hat of, I expected to hear something. We did a campaign or there's a change in the landscape. There was legislation introduced. I thought this was going to impact my product, but now I'm not seeing any questions about it mm. and ask why, what is our, is our clinician based not exposed to it? Like we thought they would be exposed to it. Maybe there it is very clear to them and there are no, no questions. But I like to perform this negative analysis as well to see what we're not, not seeing. So there's a lot there that's that we're going to talk about. And so the, one of the goals of this podcast is for other people in similar roles to walk away with something that is, tan, is like tangibly helpful for them. So I'm thinking about that idea of what are you not seeing? And I'm trying to think, okay, if I was leading a team of people responding to that, how would I practically train them to ask that question or look for those things? Because that's really, that seems really different and difficult than, oh, we just got 15 response, 15 questions about the same thing. That seems much easier and you know what to do with it. But how do you get to that? What are you not seeing amongst your team? Yeah, it does take an extra level of thinking to be able to do that, but it can be driven by a lot of different things. The first, it's usually what are the internal business interests or initiatives. Some companies do the scientific concept monitoring that each company is interested in of itself, areas of special interest, essentially. And you watch for those types of questions. The medical information and medical affairs, don't we don't prompt questions. In general, we don't go out to a clinician and say, hey, what do you think about XYZ? When we get those questions, then we're, we take notice of them. But you can start there with your internal business imperatives, your strategic imperatives, and see, are you tracking this notion? I also like to look at generally a, a robust company may have a media awareness department where they're tracking different things that are coming up on the news. So if something relevant comes up, I, maybe a year ago, I was looking at something and there was a new some additional emphasis on pregnancy with a variety of different products. So I was curious, like, are we going to see an uptick in questions about pregnancy in our products? So we just watched it for a few months to see, was there something? And we didn't see anything. And that was proactive looking. You can do this reactively as well, especially around new data that's being released. That's very common when you have something exciting coming out about your product, it's maybe a poster at a conference, you'll want to monitor to see if you're hearing anything. And if you're not hearing anything, that is definitely important to know, especially if it's you thought it was an impactful new data to, to share with clinicians. Yeah. So that sounds very, to me, very collaborative with other parts, certainly of medical affairs. And in previous life, I used to work for some technology companies that were all about kind of insights gathering and insights management, whether that was mm-hmm. ad boards or whether that was seeing what people were saying on Twitter or, or other things. It's a big field. <clears throat> and it's interesting to think about MedInfo playing in that because from outside, I always thought of Med, 
MedInfo almost as a scientific core of med affairs, where there's a lot of different versions of the MedInfo content that other people in med affairs are tailoring to different materials and posters or whatever their responses for their MSLs or what their MSLs are telling people or where their microsites and the like. But it's really interesting to think of medical information taking on more of that monitoring stand standpoint of just the overall chatter and activity. Do you find, and this is, this might be very different company to company. I'm not actually asking how you do it at your particular company, but a lot of times there's like some companies have a very hard divide between med affairs and commercial, but a lot of the stuff you're talking about would seem really important for commercial or really important for access. Has that been changing at all? How MedInfo is, is communicating with other groups like commercial? Yeah, that's always been a sensitive topic. Yeah, since I've been in pharma, it's very clear that there is that firewall between the two functions. It is important to be able to share insights. And so there are pathways to be able to do this. It's usually done at the leadership level where you're sharing the concepts from one one department to the other. What I find an overriding theme though, is that the where the care is taken is where commercials influence into medical affairs. So that's where we want to make sure that firewall is most effective that we may be sharing insights to say, Hey, here's some really key things that we're hearing. Keep it in mind for future business strategy. If it's off label, things like that, obviously they can't act on it, but it can shape where they want to lead the company. But then conversely, uh, Metafairs is benefits from knowing the commercial strategy, but should not be influenced by the right. commercial strategy. So maybe like less of a firewall, more of a valve or a one way, <laughs> one way yeah, right. flow of information. Can I ask, and this is, this seems very topical because last week I was at the DIA show out in Anaheim and it seemed like half of the vendors there were call centers, various outsourcing groups for mm-hmm. certainly for MSLs, but also for Med, MedInfo. And I'm just wondering, how have you seen that play into different staffing models or the skill sets that you're looking for in medical information over the years? Yeah, I've always worked with some outsourced vendor and it's so helpful. When you have a good vendor, um, it makes all the difference. And I've come to just consider them as part of the team, essentially, that they're a good vendor will function at that capacity. And there's so many different things that they can do to help medical information. Oftentimes call centers are outsourced. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will be familiar with that. Mm-hmm. But writing standard response documents, they can help write some escalated custom response as well. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes with some internal oversight on that. Mm-hmm. But really a, a lot of things can be aided through a, an outsourced partner. And like I said, yeah, they just become part of the team. And I think it's a skill set that we actually should be looking at in our medical affairs staff, even at the manager level now, is that can you work with and manage vendors? I see a lot of very eager people new to the industry who want to do it all and don't see that delegating and giving something and overseeing a vendor to do even more can actually be powerful to your own resume, to your own skill set, to be able to say, yes, I can do so much, but I can superpower what I can do when you give me a vendor right. to work with. I love that. And that's, I feel like that is to me, one of the 
things. That's one of the big differences to me about good leadership or management versus bad. It's like a good environment. If you figure out a way to bring in somebody that's better at a task than you are mm -hmm. more efficiently, that actually reflects very positive on you. And if, if people, if it's a bad environment, right? It's, oh no, you need to take ownership of that because it's only your direct work that comes into that. So you, from what I understand, you're saying call centers and the standard responses might be the low hanging fruit. And then if you're trying hard, if you're putting more effort into it, more of the custom responses, is that accurate? Those require sometimes the internal data on file. So it may be more difficult to research responses or there could be additional sensitivity or legal regulatory implications about what you're sharing. So the nuances can get more creative at that point. And so then how do you tie that into what we were talking about before with finding trends and answering un unknown questions? Like, what are you not seeing? Is that complicated by the call center or do you just work that into your process and you're using them to mine data and things like that? Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, again, a good outsourced partner you can work with to help you with those insights and telling them ahead of time, here's what we're interested in particular if you get this type of question flag it or if it's particularly sensitive controversial maybe you don't want the call center or an outsource center to be managing it you want to see those every time they're coming in so you ask them to escalate i'm always sensitive to how many business rules we're throwing at any vendor it's a lot a team of agents or specialists to try and have to remember there's 20 different things that I need to make sure that if I get this question, I have to do this and that. But regardless, there's ways to work with your vendor in order to have them also be a partner in your insight gathering. gathering. Yeah, that's really interesting <clears throat> because to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like if you're not doing that strategic work and that insight gathering, then it could be really easy to be seen as just a, as a cost center. Right. And it's just how efficiently can you answer these things? And that's that's not a, generally that's not a good place to be <laughs> if you're working right. in an organization. So it seems like putting an emphasis on the strategic value that you're bringing to a company is really important for the organization. Yeah, I a while back I worked with somebody who worked with a more traditional customer service call center and he brought over a lot of his metrics and those are important to monitor, but some of them are not as important. Oftentimes you look at how quick can you get off the call and turn around and get onto another call, your time off the call and wrapping up your documentation and things like that. All important metrics for yeah. sure. But at least where I've enjoyed being when looking at those kind of productivity metrics, efficiency metrics at a call center, especially is the one about the length of time on a call. If a clinician needs more time, I don't want a specialist or agent rushing that clinician to get off the phone. Let them ask the questions that they have to ask and make sure that we understand what they're asking. Yeah, that there's metrics and insights around just like I said, the productivity, the basic numbers important to monitor the insights and trends are the where the real meat of what we're doing is yeah that makes a lot of sense it's, you're trying to see the forest not the trees and, <laughs> and yeah it's almost to me it almost sounds like the same thing when you talk to somebody who's working at a hospital these days it's okay you got to get through yeah. the patients but you also don't want the patient coming back next week right <laughs> so let me ask a different kind of train of questions what would you say 
has been the impact of new technologies, positive, negative over the, over the last five years? Or so? yeah, I, this is a kind of one of those questions that you're hoping not stating too much of the obvious, but I'm sure people are talking about COVID still. That I really I think really supercharged this notion of virtual interactions. Mm-hmm. I've seen I haven't done it yet myself, but I've seen a lot more like virtual camera type options to mm-hmm. answer questions. You can get in on a video chat or set up an appointment even to talk to a medinfo specialist and talk over one of the many applications. So I think that's one area. Even chat has almost seen this popularity and now perhaps decreasing a little bit. I haven't looked and asked around of my colleagues, but I wonder where the traditional chat is going now that we have a bit more these video technologies and mm-hmm. capabilities. And then the self-service, I think, is getting more popular as well. There are still ways to go on it in regards to both the technology as well as the regulatory implications about not providing information that's not being asked for. So the ongoing challenge of how do you make sure that somebody who's doing a self-service, asking a question, and then having the automated response provided or standard response letter given back, how do you know that the question that they're asking, the technology truly recognizes that question and gives it back? But those are a couple of things. Those predate probably five five years even, but I do see that there are different organizations using them more and certainly the medical affairs presence online is getting far more robust. When you start looking around at these different sites, they're just a tremendous amount of information, disease state information even, very interactive, professionally done. It's just incredible when you start looking around. Yeah, the self-service one, you said a couple things. One is that it's getting more popular, but there's a ways to go. And then there are regulatory concerns. It's sometimes there's regulatory concerns where it's like a product is actually fully baked and ready to go, but there are legit regulatory concerns about whether or not we want to use it or not. My experience using self-service outside of MedInfo is always super frustrating. Right? I'm just trying to talk to Verizon about my cable internet or whatever. And I'm like, can I just talk to a person? Do you, I'm sure you must do surveys and things like that afterwards. Are the doctors liking the self-service? Are they thinking that it's meeting their needs? Or are they thinking that it needs to... Yeah, the little bit I've looked around it, it is similar. Very challenging. It's either... It's oftentimes too overbuilt where you have to guess too many of the keywords to put in your question in order to get answers. I've used it a few times and unfortunately I rarely get what I'm trying to look for as well. So that's why I say it's got a ways to go still. And like I said, some of that is complicated and rightfully so through a regulatory oversight. So the technology is nice and there's a whole other aspect to to have to consider as we apply technology to what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that was a big topic of conversation at DIA was generative authoring or GPT like there it's most of the companies that I talked to were very, are not going to be putting their stuff into chat GPT itself anytime soon, because the way that works is once it's in there, then the machine is learning from it. And then theoretically (laughs) can be querying your stuff. But what was funny is I talked to probably a bunch of people that had that perspective, although they're all 
sniffing around it in ways that I'll explain in a second. And then the other night I was talking to a doctor friend of mine who's involved in some clinical trials, and he was saying that he didn't have the consent forms in Spanish and he couldn't get it from this company because there was a small company out of England or whatever, and they just didn't have it. So he actually put it into GPT and said, hey, give me this in Spanish. And it's just really funny that it's like, if you're, people are going to be doing things like that all the time or not embracing it. So I'm just curious, has there been any conversations that you've heard around, around this stuff? Or if not, is that something that you think is going to be on the roadmap anytime soon? Yeah, it's obviously really an interesting topic and keeps coming up. There's still obviously some very big drawbacks when you're using it. The ones that I've seen, yeah, they're not well referenced. The answers that are provided, sometimes the answers are wrong and not entirely complete, that there's much more to the concept that they're yeah. the, the answer provided, whereas I don't I think a human would go into that a little bit more. So it's hard to distinguish what, especially if you're truly asking a question because you need to know, you may not know what is wrong, what is only partially right, what has a lot more relevant information. And this is what your human interaction is still bringing to the table. But I I was watching an interesting video on this not too long ago. And where I think that this might push us, especially as AI continues, is making us better question askers. Mm-hmm. We, the answer you get out of AI is often the quality is based on the quality of the question asked. And that's the, even from the scientific perspective, it's always been, well, do we know the question that we're actually asking in order mm-hmm. to get the answer that we need? And I can see medical information refining and getting better even at that level to know how to ask a proper question to get the true answer that we need, which is what we talked about at the very beginning is that whole exercise of refining a question, truly understanding what a clinician is asking, get to that. And AI can be certainly a tool. You can, once you have a well-formulated question, you can get some direction and some ideas about what does the AI, when they have searched or it has searched the universe of information, what are they coming back with? But still, I think we're a ways off from being able to just hand the keys over to AI. It'll be like a lot of other things. It'll be an important tool that we can use, but we're still going to need trained clinicians for a while longer to to look at the answers that are given. Yeah. It's all, it feels very, it reminds me of one of my favorite books, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the answer is yeah. 42, but then they're like, exactly. well, the yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right, Tim, let's leave it, leave it there. That was a wonderful conversation and thank you very much for, for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.